This is Global Humanist Shop Talk. I'm ML Clark. The population then starts to run massively. Now we're talking hundreds of thousands of people. Population was 8.3 million. Uh, we end up with 4 million running in days. This is not over six years. This is 4 million people running in days in all directions to try to pr provide protection, going through all these checkpoints and so on, and being slaughtered on, on, on their way, running into ad hoc refugee camps in the periphery, dying of cholera by the thousands. Uh, and and this, is, this is ongoing. And the whole NGO community, the whole international community, packed up and left. The only ones that were left there was finally my small force that was reduced to about 450 uh, and the International Red Cross. Everybody else had gone. Within two days of the start of it, there was no more radio, TV, telephone, or water. And so the country was literally isolated. I was eight years old when the Rwandan genocide took place between April 7 and July 15 in 1994. In over a hundred days, somewhere between 500 and 662,000 people from the minority ethnic group known as the Tutsi were slaughtered by Hutu militias, including everyday Hutu taking up arms against their neighbors. Also killed were more moderate Hutu citizens and members of the Twa minority. Somewhere between a quarter to half a million women and girls were also raped during the genocide, which speaks to the absolute frenzy, the delirium that had overtaken this nation after months of rising hate rhetoric on the radios and in other public propaganda. The Rwandan genocide was also talked about extensively in Canada, in part because Canada had a rare hero in this event, Romeo Dallaire, commander of a UN peacekeeping force in the region during that period. Most of the world did nothing while the slaughter was underway, and even Dallaire was limited in what he could do to stop the genocide in process. Most of his local UN staff were murdered in the early days of the attacks, leaving Dallaire more or less trapped in a bystander role, with limited resources to do more. But he did what he could by offering protection for Tutsi and moderate Hutu at his outfit's headquarters in Amahoro Stadium, along with a few other UN sites. Dallaire still faced criticism, especially by Belgium in the coming years, for not having done more to intervene when members of their local units were tortured and murdered, sometimes right in front of him. An extremely tall order when he was already walking a delicate tightrope with the Rwandan attacking force himself. I was fortunate to get to see Dallaire speak in person once, and I think anyone who's seen him speak about these events will remember especially the way he shakes when he talks about what transpired, even and especially when talking about the very tense moments when he actively refused entry of the murdering Hutu forces into the stadium, his hands and his arms still have a distinct tremble from the horrors of that day, that whole era. I don't doubt that there is nothing the Belgium Senate or any other critics from the era could do or say or judge him on that would ever drown out his own relentless questioning of whether there was indeed more he could have done to stop the slaughter of human life he saw all around him for those few months. 
It's a question that haunts many of us, even if not in active combat scenarios, even not personally, vividly put to the test of holding the line when a roving band of murderers comes knocking on our doors, where we've tried to give other human beings shelter. What would we do? How would we help? Could we be so brave? The story of Dallaire served to keep alive the Canadian cultural myth of being the world's peacekeepers, ever since Lester B. Pearson won a Nobel Peace Prize for helping to found the UN peacekeepers amid the Suez Canal crisis in 1956. Because Canada was so fixated on its own role in the Rwandan proceedings, though, it would be many years later when I finally learned more about the complex backdrop leading up to this genocide. One part was certainly clear from early on. The Hutu and Tutsi populations had been significantly divided in the first place by British colonialism, a powerful force in seeding the idea that one group was more important, more ethnically superior than the other. But another difficult part of the equation came from the civil war that preceded the Rwandan genocide. For three years, from 1990 to 1993, the Rwandan Patriotic Front was engaged in a fight in northern Rwanda from their base in neighboring Uganda against the Rwandan government. The Hutu president at the time, Juvenal Habyarimana, created a peace treaty, the Arusha Accords of August 1993, that were meant to end the violence. Then, on April 6, his airplane was shot down. To this day, no one knows if it was dissident RPF members or government-aligned Hutu supremacists who opposed the negotiations process with this rebel army. No one knows who shot this leader down. Either way, this was the spark, added to a long-standing powder keg of propaganda against the Tutsi minority that launched one of the world's most brutal modern genocides. And the worst part? The Rwandan Patriotic Front was absolutely made up of Tutsi members, but more specifically Tutsi refugees. People who, once having fled to Uganda, were then caught up in its own civil war and then endured an attempt by locals to force them into refugee camps in 1982. When this failed, a massive purge took place instead and 40,000 refugees were driven back to Rwanda, where only 4,000 would be recognized as nationals. This left some 35,000 essentially stateless, in legal limbo across the border. It was from this pool of displaced people, caught between a rock and a hard place, that the RPF gained its easy recruiting body. To be clear, the actions of this rebel group do not by any measure justify the brutal, sweeping genocide of Tutsi citizens in Rwanda the following year. They only contextualized that Rwanda had been living with an untenable and desperate situation for many decades, and they highlight that by looking at how displaced people are treated in any region, we can get a better sense of what challenges, up to and including the risk of genocide itself, await us in the world ahead. After all, it's that mental flip, that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Shop Talk, and for six episodes, we're moving through different landscapes in the world of mobility rights and displaced people, 
our past migrations, our present crises, and the future of movement we deserve. Shifting our attention over to Africa and Sudan is witnessing a renewal of bloodshed following a major flare-up of violence earlier this year. We have the latest information coming in. At least 50 people have been killed and dozens injured in tribal clashes in Darfur. The clashes erupted over the weekend between Arab Rezgat and the Masalate tribes in western Darfur region. This is the latest incident since the signing of a peace agreement late last year and the withdrawal of UN peacekeepers. The Darfur conflict broke out when rebels from the territory's ethnic central and sub-Saharan African community launched an insurgency in 2003. Complaining of oppression by the Arab-dominated government in the capital Khartoum, the clashes pose a challenge to the efforts by Sudan's transitional government to end decades-long rebellions in areas like Darfur. The genocide that most gripped me during my youth started when I was 17, freshly in university and taken up by the massive campus efforts to inform us about what was happening in Darfur, in Sudan. This first genocide of the 21st century would go on for almost two decades, and it still hasn't cleanly resolved itself now. The targets this time were Masalit and Zagawa black ethnic groups. The culprits were Danjaweed forces, an Arab military group that operates in the Darfur region especially. Rape, mutilation, torture, death. All the usual horrors of genocide transpired. Some three million lives were internally displaced, Death estimates sit at around 400,000. And again, the crisis has not fully ended even after the division of Sudan as a country into Sudan and South Sudan in 2011. Because just creating a new border, a new state, isn't sufficient to combat the underlying resource crisis that sometimes drives one group to look for any excuse to drive another out. Displacement persists and over 6 million people needed humanitarian assistance in 2022 after ruling generals seized power in an October 2021 coup. Sudan remains one of the world's worst regions for widespread abuse, and the World Food Program has warned that around 40% of the subsistence-level farming population is now at risk of slipping even deeper into food insecurity, especially with skyrocketing inflation. neighboring Ethiopia, just to the east of Sudan and South Sudan, is also still precariously coming out of its own civil war. Another brutal affair involving genocidal crimes that for two years saw different ethnic militaries terrorizing civilians, especially in the north, as the government took action against forces in the northern region of Tigray making a bid for independence. There too, displacement pressures played a significant role because Ethiopia's government allied itself with the northern state of Eritrea, once an enemy in another long-standing regional war, to attack the territory that sat between the two of them. 
What did Eritrea get from this arrangement? A chance to seek out and punish deserters, people from Eritrea who had fled its brutal tyranny into Tigray in prior years. All of which I mentioned not so much to depress us, although the world certainly has plenty in the way of ongoing conflict and strife to do so. So much as to call attention to a difficult but important truth that is often neglected when we talk about war refugees. And we do talk quite a bit about war refugees in the West, often with great suspicion. Many anti-refugee advocates in North America and Western Europe are afraid to bring over men from these war-torn regions because they don't know what those fleeing men might have done. Are they actually victims seeking to avoid the violence by moving to another country? Or are they people who have committed heinous war crimes themselves? whether forced into military service or not. Western countries are more amenable to bringing over women and children because these demographics certainly aren't the ones weaponizing rape against fellow citizens. But suspicion remains, and the services required to navigate the nuance of bringing men over in these circumstances are wanting. So too, for that matter, are the services needed to help women and children heal from the trauma that they experience War and its crimes do staggering damage to the psyche of a whole population, and the level of counselor, the kinds of social workers needed to reach arriving refugees with the information they need to begin the long path to recovery are not always easy to provide en masse. There are some people too who glibly and dismissively suggest that these people should just all stay and fight for their nation. That kind of cruelty can be discarded with fairly swiftly, since it does not come from a genuine interest in the welfare of these people. But the question of how to manage the huge number of refugees fleeing from war without creating newly disenfranchised and angry displaced populations who might later be radicalized into harmful actions is a difficult one. For instance, Ayan Hirsi Ali, a former Muslim who became atheist and is now a strong anti-Islam critic, and women's rights activist recently advanced a very delicate conversation around the rape crisis in Sweden. In research for her book, Prey, she sifted through data that highlighted a disproportionate number of foreign residents found responsible for local rapes. In particular, she calls attention to the statistics gathered by Ardavan Koshnud et al. in a forensic sciences research paper titled, Swedish Rape Offenders, a Latent Class Analysis. This work noted that Swedish-born offenders of Swedish-born parents made up 40.8% of the offenders who were convicted of these crimes, while 47.7% of the offenders were people born outside of Sweden. Of these, 34.5% were from the Middle East and North Africa, with 19.1% specifically from Africa. Since 19.7% of the Swedish population is foreign-born, this means the group is overrepresented among convicted rapists by a factor of 2.4, and that foreign-born citizens from Africa are overrepresented by a factor of 4.7. Are these numbers surprising when a population is displaced from one very difficult cultural context for traumatic reasons into a country that doesn't necessarily have the resources of full integration and trauma work all at once? No, not at all but they also raise complex questions far more difficult than the ones we Canadians were given to wrestle over 
when faced with the example set, the powerful example set by Romeo Dallaire. Because in the middle of an active crisis, if you are an active presence in that country, in some ways it can be far easier to measure the strength of your convictions. Dallaire put himself in harm's way to save lives, lives that were under immediate threat in the stadium behind him. And it still wasn't easy. He and his surviving staff still had to make choices about when and where to intervene in order not to lose control entirely of the situation. And people in positions like that, for many years thereafter, still live with the consequences. But what about the much messier, much more nebulous choices we have to make as whole cultures? Choices that don't just put our lives on the line, but also the bodies and the well-being of other people in our communities. This is where we, as a set of more comfortable countries in the West, are not well prepared to make the choices for investment in protecting, saving, and resettling lives that we need to be. Because on the one hand, it is very clear from recent histories of human civilization that there is little more precarious and damaging than leaving people in limbo, caught between borders and identities and any hope of a more stable life ahead. When a war is waging that forces men into military roles where they will commit war crimes or be killed on the spot, something needs to be done to stop the cycle of violence before it deepens. When a war is waging that traps women and children between one group of mutilators and rapists and another, something needs to be done to return safety and dignity to their lives. But what? The problem with anxieties about war refugees and about the psychological state of such fleeing citizens brought over to western shores is that it entirely distracts from the wide range of preventative measures we could and should have been better investing in all along the way. So yes, as a set of cultures, we are going to keep grappling with how to safely bring over people fleeing violence, as we absolutely should, even when it is hard, and even when it means that we will need to rethink resource allocation and citizen training to help shoulder the load of hardship that comes next. But there would be far less for us to be anxious about if we were also better trained up in the first place to recognize the many different prevention measures that would have been far less costly and far less traumatizing to invest in globally instead. Displacement is here and it is rising, but that doesn't mean we give up on the global development efforts that stand the best chance of cutting off pathways to civil war and all-out genocide before the next one comes to pass. This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk with M.L. Clark. Maurizio Ferraz is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo, and all further credits for cited and referenced content can be found in attached episode notes. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon. You can also follow my work at Better Worlds Theory, a weekly newsletter at mlclark.substack.com. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Be well, be kind, and seek justice where you can.